Today, I, I start, as I mentioned, that series, it starts at home. And, and I, really, I really feel like over the coming weeks, our goal is to resource you. Uh, you're going to hear words like intentional, uh, because we want to help build intentional families of faith. Um, and it really doesn't matter where you are, what home looks like for you. You may be a single mom. Uh, you may be a single dad. You may be a blended family. You may be an empty nester who had only thing in the last, you didn't date. And you know, you kind of come to this point in your life where your kids just left the house and you're looking at each other and you don't have anything in common anymore. And you're saying, who are you? Because your kids were all that you had in common the last several years of your marriage. And you're trying to figure out how do we stay fulfilled in marriage at this season of our life. There are so many different life stages. Matter of fact, We've identified 29 different life stages, whether you're single and plan to stay that way, or you're single and looking forward to finding the right spouse, or whether you find yourself divorced, whatever you may be in life, however home looks like right now for you, um, we have created a kiosk out in the foyer called Home Place. When you see Home Place, you know that is your resource arm during this series that will equip you. And in those 29 different life stages, we have created a brochure for each of those life stages. Like this is the empty nest brochure and you open it up and it gives biblical principles that will help you navigate empty nest stage of life. And then it gives just practical information and steps. And then going further, there are resources, whether DVDs you can watch, CDs you can listen to, books you can read, various resources that can help you grow. Or if there's a small group going on right now that connects to that stage of life, it's listed in this as well. Uh, I just happened to grab a few of them here. Uh, influencing grandchildren. This is for grandparents. Blending families. Uh, engaged but preparing for marriage. Hope to marry. Proactively pursuing marriage. Or single and asking the question, should I stay this way? Is God calling me to a life of uh, being single? So, And those are just a few of the 29 life stages that are available back at Home Place. So I'll reference a little bit more of that at the end. But that is a resource for your spiritual growth. Why are we doing this for the next several weeks? Because we believe the home is the primary context for spiritual formation, for better or for worse. The home forms you into who you are. When God created us, He wired us for flesh and blood relationships with a mom, a dad, a spouse, a child, and others who profoundly shape our lives and our perception and experience of faith at the same time, whether those people intend to shape our faith or not, they do. This sermon that I'm preaching this morning and the next several that flow from it is an invitation for us to become highly intentional about fulfilling our God-ordained roles at home and in the progress or the process, giving our family something better than what you might have experienced growing up. Over the years, as I've taught, I've been very vulnerable and transparent about my own family's dysfunctions growing up and the shortcomings of my parents and my father. And I've been surprised at some of the statements I have made about my own family and how they painfully resonate with other people. I want to tell you the story of Maria. One day she heard the pastor say and make this statement. Your relationship with your parents, and especially your father, has a significant influence on how you perceive God. That statement cut Maria so deeply that she was unable to pay attention to the rest of the sermon. Let me make that statement again. Your relationship with your parents, and especially your father, has a significant influence on how you perceive God. 
She was so troubled by that statement that she made an appointment the next week to sit down and talk with one of the pastors in the church office. Maria was a spiritual seeker who had yet to come to Christ, and I guess you could casually say she was kicking the tires of Christianity to see if this was something before, for her. And along the way, as she started coming to church with some friends and experiencing the presence of God, she started journaling, writing down her thoughts, writing down her objections to Christianity, writing down her questions. And she brought that journal into the meeting with the pastor that day. And she actually read one of her objections or questions about God to the pastor. And this comes straight from her journal. I hear songs and sermons about God sending His only Son to die for us. I wonder... Why would God do that to his son? Maria's dad had been a lot like my dad before my dad came to Christ. Her father was a self-centered man that had abandoned his family for a series of other women. He failed to protect his daughter, putting her in harm's way. And to make it worse, he often quoted the Bible, or you could say he misquoted the Bible to undergird his lifestyle. It's through these lenses of the broken relationship with her father that Maria perceived the death of Christ. And as a result, it's no wonder that she viewed the cross and the death of Christ as a selfish, heavenly father saying this, take my kid, but whatever you do, don't take me. Because that's what Maria's father did to her. God is a mystery. And He is unable to be understood or comprehended in our human mind. So that's why in the Scripture, there are multiple metaphors that are given to us to define God to help us better understand who He is. Metaphors like the Good Shepherd, or metaphors like the Righteous Judge. But the two most common metaphors used in the Bible to define the nature of God is loving husband and caring father. You can better relate to God when you properly relate to a spouse or a parent. But what happens when those points of reference in your life are warped? What if your father was like Maria's? We often, like Maria, will convey that dysfunction of our families upon the God that we worship and it becomes a stumbling block to the Christian faith or a stumbling block to intimacy with God once we get into the Christian faith. Maria's journal further revealed that she was friends with a lot of happily married couples and quietly that was the greatest passion of her life was to spend her life happily married to someone. But she had never even been on a date and she felt herself unlovable which is another byproduct of not having a nurturing father at home. But when Maria in this conversation saw the gospel for what it really was. Not through the lenses of her broken relationships, but she saw the message of the love of God for her, for what it really was. It opened her heart to experience love like she had never known it before. That pastor that day explained to her a different biblical metaphor. She was having trouble with the loving husband and the caring father thing, and so that pastor that day used another metaphor the Bible uses to explain God. The Bible pictures God as a loving suitor passionately pursuing His cherished beloved. He explained how humanity had been seduced away by a deceiver that was trying to keep humanity away from its rightful husband. And it was in that moment that Maria realized that God had made her 
beautiful. He had made her perfect. He had made her lovable. And he had pursued her as a part of the church because the church was to be his bride. And after she processed this, not at that moment, but later on, she eventually accepted God's marriage proposal, as you please, and she surrendered her heart to Jesus Christ. But the kind of hurdles that she faced in embracing Christianity are all too common, especially for the younger generation. A recent study, and I've been reading a lot for my final doctoral class, about 1,500 pages actually in the last few weeks, most of it directed towards the faith or perception of the faith of the younger generation, those born between 1980 and the year 2000. And in a recent study of the younger generation, it revealed an alarming trend of their negative perceptions about the church and the Christian faith. The research showed that most self-identified unbelievers, that means they were not believers, they stated they were not believers, they didn't have any desire to be a believer, the most self-identified unbelievers in this country are actually former church kids. For the first time in American history, many of those inclined towards belief, our own kids, are actively rejecting or passively abandoning the Christian faith. The problem is not, not what's not happening at church. The problem is what's not happening in the home. No matter how creatively the church proclaims God's word to the children at church, they are more likely to believe their experience of faith lived out in their home because incarnation always trumps proclamation. And I want to let that sink in. Incarnation always trumps proclamation. Proclamation is the preaching of the word. It's what I'm doing right now. Proclamation are what our children's pastors are doing in the back right now as they creatively try to display the message of the love of God to your children. That's proclamation. But incarnation is when it puts flesh on and it walks out in the day-to-day lives and they see what they heard lived out in your life or they see the embodiment of the gospel of grace worked out in your family in the life and the eyes of a child, a student, a teen, incarnation always trumps proclamation incarnation is a big word that simply means in flesh meant it's what christmas is god became flesh and blood human being to reveal himself to us in a way that written words could not the gospel of john says it this way in john 1 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us christianity is not a lofty a religion of lofty ideals that It has some distant lawgiver. The God of Christianity is someone we have seen with our eyes and our hands have literally touched. Our God became one of us. 1 John 1 describes this incarnation. God becoming man. Man that we could see. A man that we could touch. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was the Father and has appeared to us. It is a description of God becoming flesh, putting the image of God in human flesh. That is incarnation. 
It's no wonder that every major heresy in church history has been an attack on the doctrine of incarnation. Satan hates the fact that God became flesh. Satan hates the fact that Isaiah 53, the God became flesh and He felt all of your pain. He embodied all of your sin. He felt all of your shame and all of that became one in Christ. He felt that and bore it to a cross. He hates it. It was His downfall. He also hates healthy families because health Healthy families are an earthly embodiment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. An earthly, a, a, a healthy family is an incarnational example of the unity and love that flows from God. Families are meant to be the living display of God's love to the world incarnationally in fleshing the gospel to their neighbors, their friends, their children, and their children's friends. The scriptures teach us that When a husband and wife become one flesh through marriage, it creates for the church and the world a beautiful picture of the union between Christ and His church. Do you want to make the devil cringe? Do you want to drag your fingers, nails across the chalkboard of hell? Then stay married for 50 years. Do you want to drag your fingernails across the chalkboard of hell? Then stop the busyness in your schedule. Don't run through the drive-thru every night this week. Push pause and get your family around a dinner table, no matter how good or bad a cook you might be, and laugh a little bit with your family this week. Enjoy each other's company because that's why God gave you to each other. Satan does not fear a religion that merely stencils words on stone tablets or even powerfully preaches them in a sermon. What he dreads is when the Word of God becomes flesh and blood in the tangible context of a God-honoring family. I want nothing more on this planet than for my three kids to experience the Christian faith more than their academic success or their athletic success or even my desires and wishes that they walk and be materially blessed and have the favor of God on their life. I would love it to be all one and the same, but if I had to choose, the most important priority for my children is that they experience my faith, that Caden and Gavin and Addison know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and their life embodies the gospel where they live it. However it looks in the coming days, I pray that they come to faith. Every generation of Christian parents has the same hope for their children. So why, all of a sudden, do fewer kids growing up in Christian families actually reject the Christian... Why do fewer kids embrace the Christian faith and why are more and more rejecting the Christian faith? Well, you're going to have to, a couple times between now and the end, you're going to have to use your imagination. But just pretend that I had three budding flowers in my clenched fist today and they were they were life they were budding they were coming into something new and i'm holding the stems and at the bottom of the stems are these tender roots that need nourishment and each one of those stems is a representation of each of my children three I'm holding them in my hand and their roots are exposed and I'm aware of their delicate need for living water. So I bring them to a watering can called the local church where pastors and small group leaders and youth and children's workers can pour their life-giving nourishment into them. So I dip my hand into the watering can called the local church and I pull them out because my hand is still there on the stem. The water runs across my hand down to their roots but doesn't stay long enough to bring them healthy nourishment and it runs off into the floor. They begin to wither. 
So I start looking for other solutions. I know my children will die spiritually unless I have a more effective means of imparting faith to them. So I think, well, maybe I need a bigger can. If I had a bigger can that had more water, it would help. Or if I had a more cutting-edge contemporary can that was a little sharper. So what I need is a a youth pastor. If I can find a can that has a youth pastor that, that is what my children aspire to be. Or if I can find a can that has a children's ministry that will rival Disney, that's what I need and so so I go and I dip my children in the larger can the cutting edge can I dip my children in the Disney can hoping that it will effectively reach my kids but the heavy flow of water from these cans only splashes past me barely staying on the roots for a moment and it eventually goes to the ground and obviously the problem is not with the size of the can the problem is not the style of the watering can roots can only grow if they're planted in soil And yet an entire generation of parents seems to be missing the point of God's design. Faith has to be nourished in the rich soil of a God-honoring family. The church's role is to provide the water. But the lifelong faith requires deep abiding roots that spring from a family. Whether it's you single mom providing the soil or whether it's you single dad or whether it's you as a blended family fleshing that out where you live or if you're the traditional American family, mom, dad, two children, whatever it is in your life, your family is the soil of where real spiritual growth happens. You want to hear a sobering fact? After a child passes the age of 13, there is a 4% likelihood that they will become a Christ follower if they're not already by the age 13. I remember when that number was 13%. And that number is drastically declining with every younger generation because of the perceptions that this young generation has about the Christian faith. That's one reason why we have so much emphasis here on next generation ministries. That's why we love children's ministries and we invest in children's ministries because there is a window of opportune time where our hearts and roots are tender to to surrender to what God is doing in our life. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit cannot invade anybody's life at any stage. He does, He can, He will. It happens on a regular basis. But the likelihood in the trends is that after the age of 13, that chance goes to 4% if you're just tracking the trends it's no wonder that Jesus said to his disciples bring the little children to me it seems there's a shrinking window of opportune time when we are most inclined towards belief and it's during these formative years that we need our tender roots to be seeking the nourishment inside the context of the healthy soil of a believing family So does this mean that a child growing up in a non-believing or a spiritually passive family has no hope? Absolutely not. But it does mean that those of us who have strong godly families have the responsibility to invite these children and these teenagers from unbelieving families who are a part of North Place into our lives so that they can see what a God-honoring home looks like, so they can see what a God-honoring marriage looks like, so they can see the tangible gospel with clothes on, so the words God is love begins to take on the embodiment of somebody in front of them and they see the gospel lived out on a day-to-day basis. I have challenged us for a long time that in our youth ministry and our children's ministry where there are kids coming from unchurched homes and they come alone or they're picked up or they're brought, it is our responsibility to be spiritual grandparents and spiritual parents to these spiritual orphans. They need an incarnational picture of the words God is love and how it fleshes out in real life. 
The statistics may be revealing that the next generation is losing its way in the area of faith. But a small amount of intentionality can help turn the tide. But for that to happen, we've got to understand the process of spiritual formation. How it happens in the home. What it looks like. How do we do it? Maybe we need to start by defining what is spiritual formation. Obviously, God created us in His image, the Bible says. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female. He created them. In other words, God created us as icons to reflect our Creator the same way that children are to be a reflection of their parents. We are to be a reflection of God. He created us in His image. That's the reason every time my kids go out of the house to stay at somebody else's home or they're going on a school function and many times when I pray over them at night, I remind them that the choices they make at school or the choices they make out on the ball field or the choices they make when they're out having a good time, they're not just representing themselves, they're representing me. And when they make good choices, it reflects positively on me as their dad. When they make bad choices, it reflects negatively on me as their father. And the same is true for me. My choices every day have consequences to the good or bad for them. And so part of a family is making a commitment that we're going to honor God because when we do, we honor each other in every one of our choices. We ought to reflect the image of our God in our daily lives in the same way we desire our children to reflect our image in public. In other words, God created us to reflect His nature. Unfortunately, our original parents, Adam and Eve, fell into a disease called sin. And that changed everything. Every one of us has been born as something less than we were intended to be. We are damaged versions of our original designs. Nowhere did God originally plan sin into the mix. But Adam and Eve had a choice and they chose sin. And since then, sin entered into the world. And every man and woman born since Adam and Eve has been born something less than their original design, damaged versions. We are... And when we sin, when we choose later in life to sin because we know better, we become willing accomplices in our own spiritual deformation. That's why Jesus became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us because we needed an image of what we were supposed to be. We needed an image of what a life looked like that's not marred by sin. And not only did we need an example, but we also needed somebody that was perfect to provide a way for us to get back into relationship with God so that the grace of God could remake us. So that the grace of God could renew us. So that the grace of God could transform us into His original design. That's what spiritual formation is we have been marred by sin but we are in the process of being remade by the grace of God because we were originally created in his image and so spiritual formation is daily growing more and more into the image of God and who better bore the image of God than Jesus so spiritual formation is the process by which I become more and more like Jesus every day so let me ask you to use your imagination again Imagine that I had a a, a sculptor who was up here using their gift to create from a block of marble a statue of a person that uh, was a living model. And so I would imagine the sculptor would spend less time looking at the marble and more time looking at the image of what he was trying to create. He would use his hands and his chisel, but 
His eye would be on the live model to re, so he could adequately represent that image in his piece of art. We are called to keep our eyes on Jesus, the perfect model, and to submit to the divine artist so we are gradually formed into the masterpiece he has destined us to be as he works on our life with the chisel of his word, the chisel of his Holy Spirit, and his love. He reforms us, he shapes us, he transforms us by grace. We are reformed or made in the moments when we are with God. And so when I talk about being spiritually formed, many of our minds go to prayer and Bible reading and and we go to moments of worship like this or engaging in a small group and all of those things are true measures of spiritual growth. Those things help God chisel us. They are the core disciplines, what we call spiritual disciplines. And when we imitate acts of compassion, when we turn our passion for God into love acts towards other people, like for the poor and our neighbor as we talked about last week we are living Christ in the world and our minds immediately go to those when someone talks about spiritual formation but they are not the primary context of our spiritual formation I can learn about Jesus when I read my Bible and I can feel close to Jesus when I pray but I become more like Jesus I am more spiritually formed in the image of Jesus when I give my life away selflessly to my spouse, to my children, to my grandchildren, and others that God places in my home. These are the people that God has called me to turn the Word of God into flesh amid the day-to-day realities of life. It's easier for me to sit and listen to a sermon, or for me, it's easier to sit and preach a sermon than it is to bite my tongue in an argument with my wife. The sermon nourishes my spirit. Biting my tongue teaches me humility. Spiritual formation doesn't happen the best for me. Studying for a sermon or reading the Bible. It happens best for me trying to live the gospel in relationship with my spouse. The songs of worship free me to remember who God is. Because I love listening to worship. I love those alone moments when the presence of God fills my car. And I love reading motivational, inspirational books that push me towards Jesus. But I hate apologizing to my kids when I lost my temper. Songs of worship free me to remember who God is. Having to apologize to my kids helps me remember I'm a sinner in need of repentance. Spiritual formation occurs most effectively in the times when I submit obediently to the chisel of the sculptor within the context of my local family. If I can't model the gospel in my marriage and in my family, it doesn't really have that much of an impact when I try to model it at work or at church or in my ministry. There are some people that have got all this kind of backwards. They really are not investing the efforts in their marriage or their home but they want the world to take notice of their ministries or their gifts or their talents or their charity or what they do and it's pretty important for us to realize that when Paul was writing to the local church and giving some admonishment about how elders are to be chosen and pastors are to be chosen he's going through all of this and he says one of the litmus tests is to look and see does that person govern their home well Because if the person doesn't govern their home well, they really don't have any right to be used in any authority position in the local church. Because the home is where spiritual formation happens. It is the context of where the gospel puts flesh on. 
an, an image of Jesus walking obediently and selflessly in Scripture for the good of the kingdom, Paul writes it, Jesus lived it, and it is a model for how to build healthy relationships in the family in Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature, the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In short, Marriage and my family are the primary context to which I am called to be like Jesus. What I'm talking to you about now and the next few sermons that will follow in the coming weeks are designed to equip us and to enable us to see the principles and practices that will help us make something real out of spiritual formation in our marriage and our relationship with our children and our grandchildren or figure out what that looks like if I'm single or a single mom or whatever home is defined for us. But before we can develop a plan, we have to clarify the target. We have to visualize. We have to know what the end is. In other words, we got to begin with the end in mind. What are we trying to achieve? If you look at success for the family in our culture, they'll tell you that success is achievement. It is money. It is being happy. It is status. And every one of those answers are derived from a cultural definition of success. But we, not, we need to find out what is a biblical definition of success for a marriage or for a family. All right, use your imagination again with me. Pretend in my left hand I have a hammer. And I were to ask you to define success for that hammer. You would probably say, if it has the ability to drive a nail, a hammer is successful. If I had a pen in my other hand, and I ask you to define success for this pen, you would probably say, if the, if the pen can write, if it can transfer ink to a piece of paper and write, then the pen is probably successful. Do you know why you were able to come to those terms? Is because you know why the hammer was created. You know the purpose for which the pen was created. So in order to find success for a family, in order to find success for a marriage, we have to ask the same question. Why did the creator of the family, why did the creator of the marriage create it in the first place? We have to define its purpose. And you need to understand, if you don't believe the family to God is more important than the church, then all you have to do is look at the created order. Because before God ever established the institution of the church, He established man and woman and gave them the commission to start a family. So if the family is the image of God to the world fleshed out, what is the purpose? How do you define success in that context? Well, like the hammer and the pen, what did the Creator have in mind when He made these things? And how does that clarify success? I'm going to give you a definition of marital success and a definition of parenting success from the Scriptures just as a little hint to where we're going in the future. And these are written in print under some of the meriting brochures at home place. They're written in print in some of the uh, parenting brochures at home place. But here's a biblical definition of marital success. Every marriage is intended to be a picture of the marriage between God and His people as we selflessly give ourselves to another through mutual submission and loving intimacy. Taken from the context of Ephesians 5. A definition of biblical parenting success. Those who have been blessed with the gift of children and grandchildren are called to inspire and nurture the Christian faith and godly character in the next generation as life's highest calling. From Deuteronomy 6 and Psalm 78. You're going to be hearing words in the coming weeks like intentional. Because it takes small intentional shifts in the way we do life 
to make big impacts in the next generation. Next week, I plan to address intentional couples. And somewhere down the road, I'll address intentional parenting. I want to teach you practically how to bless your children. I want to show you ways in Scripture that you can literally pray over your children at night and pray the Scriptures and be offering them a blessing that will bond their heart to yours. And there's something supernatural that happens as a pastor when I pray every Sunday, that blessing. And there's something supernatural that happens when a parent and a father or a mother play over their children a biblical blessing. And we want to equip you with that ability. I challenge you to take the resources because there's only so much we can do in the next few weeks in this context. I want the team to come to the platform if they will, Pastor Bear and the team. And this is not, let me tell you what this series is not intended to do. Okay? When I, when I start studying for stuff like this, my mind goes to immediately to all that I'm not doing in my own family. Sometimes I, I feel guilty because I, I feel like I'm more worried about the spiritual growth of people in this congregation through small groups and strategies and ideas and I spend so much time doing this and not an equivalent amount of time with my own kids. This series has the potential for me like it does anybody else to heap unhealthy a guilt or condemnation and that's not the intention of this series. The intention of this series is to offer hope. Is to remind us it doesn't matter where we are or wherever life stage we find ourselves in, how our home is defined, is to understand that even small shifts in our attempts to follow after God make big dividends down the road. Start where you are today. Because some of us may be looking at the mountain of trouble and dysfunction or in our marriage or in our home or, or our kids are so far grown or they're, you know, they're 18 or 19, they're still living at home and they're not really being influenced by what we say and we're thinking, what in the world can I do? Or our kids are already out of the house. There's so many people that could hear these messages and allow it to create condemnation for them or they could allow it to create problems. That's not the point of this message. The point is to give you tools over the next few weeks that can help you embody the gospel where you are right now start small for example four years ago I was 34 my daughter was four and when I went out to teach her how to ride a bike I didn't give her an adult bike and go to a paved hill in my neighborhood and push her down the hill and say have at it no I I got her a bike that fit it had training wheels on it and I walked beside her while she rode it till she got comfortable enough to be out by herself while I was watching, present. But she could do it on her own, but she still had the training wheels. And eventually she got to realize that maybe some of her friends didn't have training wheels anymore. And so she's, Dad, I want to learn how to ride a bike. So I took her and I walked with her and took the training wheels off and I walked beside her. And then eventually she got a little more stable. I walked behind her. And I put my hands on the back of the seat and I would walk and she wanted to go fast and I would run. And she would say the whole time, don't let go, daddy, don't let go, don't let go. But there came a point when she was yelling, don't let go, and I'd already let go a long time ago. And she was doing it by herself without me even being present, but she didn't know it. And before long, she hardly remembers ever needing any help. But it didn't start that way. And she still doesn't ride an adult bike. You've got to start where you are. The point in this today is not to take you on a full-size bike to a paved hill and push you down the hill and say, survive. That's not the objective. It is to say, embody the gospel wherever you are. 
Take some of these resources. Grow. Understand that your family is the soil in which real faith is formed. And your marriage and your family is the greatest image of Christ this world will ever see. And work on it. Some people spend more time studying to pass their driver's license test than they do working on getting ready for marriage. And this is the most important relationship to show the world what Christ is in relationship to the church. If you didn't spend time on it before, do now. Let me challenge you something. I I come across people every day. I mean, my kids play ball and I run into people all the time. And it's the one place in life I actually get to meet people who don't see me through the eyes of being a pastor. They just, I'm Addie's dad or Caden's dad. And then when they find out I'm a pastor, they're like, oh, what did I, what have I been saying? What, what have I been saying? I said, you know what, I'm Brian, it doesn't matter, you know? I get mad when Christian people think unchristian people ought to act like Christian people when I know Christian people who don't act like Christian people. So I tell unchristian people, you don't have to change just because you found out I'm a pastor. One of the awesome, th- I, I find out, you know what, they, the minute they find out I'm a pastor, they start confessing. <laughs> One of the first things they confess is, you know what, we hadn't been to church in years, and they'll look at our kids and say it's almost too late. It's not too late. But this is what I know. I know there are people in your life that don't go to church who may not have lives that line up with maybe a lot of church people's lives. That doesn't matter to me. But they really want to know this they really want to know how to do this then would you invite them to come not only because we need, I need it you need it but there are people in your lives that may not be the most spiritually sensitive people but they really want to know how to do right by their kids and the next few weeks will be an opportunity to equip them empower them so bring them and prepare your own heart I want us to stand, if we will, and I want the prayer team to come position themselves to pray for you. Would you stand all over this place? I realize that my message this morning has not been one of those messages that get people running to the altar because of the the sense of response is urgent to the Word. It's kind of practical. You go back and get a folder that fits your life stage. But, There may be some of you today who need prayer because of some need in your life that doesn't relate to anything I said, and that's why we want to make these people. We want you to know when you come to church on Sunday, people are going to agree with you and pray. You may also need prayer for something I did say. You need prayer for your family, for your marriage, and these people are here to help you with that too. Or more than that, maybe you're listening to this message and you say, Pastor, you know what, I... I, (laughs) I'm less than what I was originally designed to be. I don't know what it is to be remade by grace. I've not really walked in a real relationship with Jesus. And today in your teaching on family, I heard a little bit of the gospel and I think I want it. I need grace in my life. I I don't want to live less than what God created me to be. Can you help me understand what it means to serve Christ and have Him in my life? These people will pray with you to help that happen in your life as well. They're just here to make themselves available. And because there are a number of people that will make their way towards the exits after I pray the blessing, I challenge you, if you need prayer, while I pray, step out from where you are and let these people agree with you for the incarnation of God 
put flesh on in your life, wherever you are in your situation. Father, I pray that you'll do something deep in the soil of the families of this church. Most of our families in some way represent a degree of dysfunction or brokenness. And God, you don't need perfect families to represent you to the world. The gospel is when grace comes to imperfect places. And so if somehow we can surrender ourselves to you and model how the grace of God came into our imperfect family, that is a picture of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would transform us in the coming days. Will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Be gracious to them. Turn your countenance their direction and give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.